Our scripture reading today is from Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtiah. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice in the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. Good morning again, and thanks for joining us, whether you're on the podcast today or your first-time guest. Especially glad you've chosen to spend a part of your Christmas season here at Mosaic. There's a lot to love about the Christmas season, right? Yes, there is. And as a matter of fact, there's been a good number of studies done in the U.S. trying to get at just what makes the season so special and unique and uh, just trying to understand what people do love about the Christmas season. And the good folks at the Pew Research Center, fine pollsters they be, did a big study a couple of years ago and they actually asked the question, what do you like most about the holidays? And the question was, what do you most look forward to about Christmas? And here was your answer, America. 67% said time with friends and family. That's pretty good. 11%, thank God somebody said it, said church. All right. 7% said because people are happy and more joyful. There's Christmas spirit, 4%. 4% said music and movies. 4% said the giving, right? 3% said vacation. That's nice. Uh, Yeah, one person said amen, glory. And that'll get you excited about about Jesus right there, vacation. Uh, Acts of generosity, 2% said the food and drink. 1% said snow. None of these folks were from Texas, apparently. Uh, or at least from Central Texas, 1% said shopping and 4% other, 4% said nothing or the end of Christmas itself. I know, 2% refused to give an answer. Now, there's a couple of things that surprised me about this survey other than the fact that the answers all added up to 120%. I know you were adding uh, as you went and I... I know this happens because some polls allow people to give multiple answers when they're polled, but that just kind of sounds like cheating to me. Uh, Otherwise, it's 67% of what? Who knows? But anyway, what was surprising to me was at first, four times as many people look forward to Christmas being over as did people who love shopping. That's crazy. My wife would call those people the Scrooges and the Grinches of the survey, yes. But the second thing, about this survey that surprised me was something that surprised me because it actually didn't show up 
on the survey. And you can see just about everything else on there from food to shopping to snow to gifts to whatever. But I was surprised that one thing in particular did not show up on there. And the one thing that did not show up on the survey is actually my favorite thing about Christmas season. So it's probably that's why I noticed its absence. And the thing that did not show up on the survey and that surprised me is my favorite part of Christmas, which is the lights. The lights, yeah. Yes, somebody says lights, yes. Now, I thought that surely lights would have shown up on a survey like this because even more, I think, than all the Christmas music on the radio, and it's up to like four stations nonstop now in Austin and counting, how would, let's say, a total stranger to our country or even someone from outer space know that something different and special and unique was happening during the month of December. Hmm? Well, I think it would begin to dawn on them that something different and special and unique was happening when they saw moms and dads and people and friends and family all over the world opening up their garage doors or coming down out of their attics or opening up closets and bringing out lights. And then when it got dark, when the sun went down and you could see nothing else at all, all of a sudden, when they flipped the switch, apartments and homes and neighborhoods all over the world would be changed. They'd look different. And if those outsiders or space people were to go to a place like New York City in the winter, or even if they just drove down Mopac or 35 and they saw that big tree out in Zilker Park, or they saw all the millions and millions of lights twinkling down on way too many people on that tiny sidewalk they call the Trail of Lights, they would know, they'd be tipped off that something special and different and unique was happening. And they'd be right. Because they would see, here's what they'd be seeing, they would be seeing that light has transformed the darkness. That's what they'd be seeing. They go, you go, we go, I go to those kind of places to see light transform a darkness. And thousands of years ago, as we read in our scripture passage there, there was one man, a really, really interesting man, fascinating man, uh, the most interesting man in Israel. Isaiah was his name and he looked up and with his nation failing and his culture falling and his people even on the edge of destruction, Isaiah looked up and he saw something in that passage that gave his heart hope again. Isaiah saw something that could transform the darkness around him and Isaiah saw the same thing I believe that you can see, we can see this morning and what I believe can give your heart hope again where you need it. Isaiah saw a light. He saw a light. And this light would have been a big deal to a man like Isaiah because before Isaiah ever saw a light, Isaiah saw something else that was really hard to take. And we're going to take a look at it in a moment. Uh, Because Isaiah was a prophet. And being a prophet in that day, really any day, is a mostly unpleasant job. If you read through the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, when you read a bunch of those prophets' personal stories... You know, when you read about Isaiah or Jeremiah or Amos or Jonah, when you read their stories, you'll see they all had to have, and they had to tell you about them, these big, dramatic, calling moments. Why? Well, because nobody else was signing up to do the job. God had to do something dramatic to get him to do it, because being a prophet was a mostly unpleasant job, and not just because they were probably making less than minimum wage, uh, not just the fact that God would ask them to do crazy stuff, like live in crazy places, or wear awkward outfits, or in one case, ask one of his prophets to wear nothing at all for a while. 
totally awkward, right? You may be saying, well, that doesn't sound too bad. You know, the Middle East was kind of hot, you know? I could have handled that gig. Um, no, you couldn't. And no, you shouldn't, because we don't want you to actually handle that gig. All right. Now, that, that was hard enough, but that wasn't why being a prophet was unpleasant, Being a prophet was a difficult and lonely job because to be a prophet was to be brought into a unique position. It was to be brought to the position of someone who saw what God saw and had to say what God said to the people of Israel, Judah, even the nation sometimes. You say, well, why was that so hard? Well, because Israel had a special relationship then with the one true God. And, and Yahweh, the one true God, had rescued them, redeemed them from slavery when they were in Egypt, when they could not save themselves. And as a result, Israel had promised to always serve God, always love God, always keep his law and the terms of his covenant. They looked at God and said, you'll be our God. We'll be your people. We promise to serve you always and forever. But as the nation grew and as the nation prospered and as the nation began to win war after war and as the nation's standard of living rose, the nation also began to say, look at what we've done. Look at what we've accomplished. Who is the Lord and why should we obey him? And so after time, God raised up these prophets, these covenant watchdogs, covenant watchers who called the people back to keeping their first love, to keep the terms of the covenant and the promise they had made. And sometimes, if you were a covenant watcher, things got really hard. Life got really hard. And here in Isaiah 9, life had gotten really hard for Isaiah. Uh, We saw last week in chapter 1 that God had promised to bring judgment on Judah, like the southern state in the Union in Israel in that day because of centuries of covenant-breaking and unfaithfulness. And that, that, was, that was bad enough. But, but when Isaiah said yes to being God's covenant watcher, God would also ask difficult things of him. Uh, when Isaiah and his wife, the prophetess was her name in his book, uh, he, God asked him to actually name his children different odd names to get the people's attention. One of his children, God said, you're going to name him carried off like plunder. <laughs> carried off like plunder. To show the people their future. So that every time the people saw Isaiah's child, they would say, that's where God's taking us to be carried off like plunder. And you can imagine that child's therapy bills later in life. And then Isaiah was beginning to fear for his own life. He was receiving death threats from his countrymen because he called them to repent from living immorally. He called them to stop sinning sexually. He called them to stop ignoring and turning a blind eye to the poor and ignoring the, the lack of justice in their court and legal systems. And then in the middle of all this, Isaiah looked up in chapter 8, the chapter before the one that we read. And in chapter 8, Isaiah says, God, our land is getting pretty dark. It's pretty dark out there, God. Dark for me, Isaiah said, dark for my children, dark for our nation. And God said to him, you're right, son, but it's even darker than you think. Then God said to him, let me show you how dark it is and how dark it's going to get. Then God gave Isaiah a message to the people at the end of chapter 8, and the message began like this. Here's the question. He asked, when someone tells you, people, to consult medium spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? 
See, here God begins by pleading with the people. He's asking, why are you going to everyone and everything for help but me? Can you hear his heart for them, right? He loves them so much. He wants them to come to him for help. He said, why are you looking to dead things to try to help living, breathing people and souls? And then ultimately, this is what Isaiah saw that broke his heart. Verse 21. He said, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they're famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they'll curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And here's what's so tough about what Isaiah saw and why his heart despaired because Isaiah's seeing something here that was so hard for the people to break out of. He was seeing a cycle of darkness. And this is what a cycle of darkness in a person's or individual's or nation's life looks like. A cycle of darkness begins when you, when a person or a people orient their hearts around something besides God. And because that thing cannot satisfy, oh, it's like drinking sand. It's like trying to eat air. It cannot satisfy. It cannot save. It cannot deliver. That person or people or nation become hungrier and hungrier and become more agitated and distressed and then when they're at their lowest point when things cannot get any worse instead of turning their hearts toward God that person people nation looks down into the earth this is a prophetic way of saying people look to solve their own problems with their own resources and yes these people say we say today yes we're in darkness yes we can see there's a problem but we can overcome all human evil by ourselves we can fix our own personal problems ourselves we can fix the world's evils uh in isaiah 8 we see people looking to their own experts their own mystics their own scholars of their day and they said listen we can provide solutions to what ails the human people yeah it's dark out there but we can fix it ourselves we don't need god to be good we don't need god for a reason there is no god really who's the lord and besides you know and we say this today right i mean who is the lord there is no god and we say yeah you know we know all meaning and hope really disappear when there's no god and there's really only now as bertrand russell put it the scaffolding of despair for us to live on and get by with. And yes, that scaffolding of despair is really depressing, but we're not going to think about that too much. The point is we want to live how we want. The living how we want, yeah, it may may have brought darkness into our land and culture, but we're going to fix it by doing more of what we want. That's a cycle of darkness. And look now what Isaiah says is the end result, where that cycle spits you out of looking towards the earth relying on your own solutions to fix your own problems. He says, they will be thrust into utter darkness. This is so hard, but this is so true. He's saying, what he's saying here is this, that trying to fix, hear me, your deepest brokenness with human solutions alone only makes it worse. Now, I've got a friend, I've got a brilliant friend, multiple brilliant friends. I'm glad for them. I'm sure you are too. Brilliant friend named Greg. And some of you know Greg. And Greg's both a counselor and a theologian. And Greg teaches on overcoming fear and overcoming anxiety. Helpful stuff, right? And Greg said something this year that was revolutionary for me. He said that all sin, all the ways we do wrong, 
All the ways that we yell at our spouses, yell at our kids, cheat on our taxes, uh, sleep with that person when we're not married to them, those are all anxiety-based solutions. And that's why they never work. We're afraid of something. We're afraid we won't have enough money. We're afraid we're not going to be loved. We're afraid we're not respected. So we do those things. And so, yeah, for example, we're afraid we won't have enough money. So we cheat on our taxes. But the real issue is this, that today's solutions become tomorrow's problems. Today's solutions become tomorrow's problems. And for some of you, that was worth getting up and coming to church for right there. That was really good. Today's solutions become tomorrow's problems. It's from Greg. Yes, you solved your problem today right now, but now you're going to be investigated by the IRS, right? Today's solution, the cheating, becomes tomorrow's problem, IRS, and a prison sentence, right? I mean, yes, your child may quiet down for now, but later, it's a problem. You'll have to heal their broken heart from what you to them. See, today's solutions become tomorrow's problems. And when you try to solve your own problems apart from God's ways and even his rules and his law, and outside of trusting his love and heart for you, you actually make things worse. You go from the darkness of fear now into the utter darkness of a broken life, failed relationship, broken nation. And in Isaiah 8, we see Israel had a crucial choice to make. Will they come out of the cycle or not? Will they lift up their heads and hands and hearts to God Almighty who made them and loved them and formed them and who has their best interest in mind, whose heart was for them all along? Or will they put their heads and hands and heart back down into the earth? And Isaiah saw them doing just that, going back down into the earth. And that's when he broke. That's what Isaiah saw. He saw the light go out in his land. He saw utter darkness. And maybe this is you today. (laughs) Maybe you feel trapped uh, in a cycle of darkness. Maybe your marriage feels trapped in a cycle of darkness. Maybe your business is trapped uh, in a cycle of darkness. Maybe you feel like you're trapped in a land full of darkness. Maybe you feel like the light has gone out in your life or your family. Or, Or maybe you felt like Isaiah felt. He was afraid for his life through no fault of his own. His life was in danger just for being who he was. Just for walking the streets in his day. His children were targets. His nation was dark. And then he sees in his vision the light go out in Judah. Darkness in his soul, in his land. Utter darkness everywhere. One of my favorite parts among many in the Lord of the Rings is near the end of the two towers when these two hobbits, Frodo and Sam, are lost in a dark land, an evil land named called Mordor, and they've been unknowingly led. They've been tricked into a spider's lair, a giant monster's a wicked lair, and it was incredibly dark in this place, dark in the spider's lair, and they begin to doubt they'll ever be able to see again or accomplish their mission. And in that moment, in their moment of darkness, they remembered that Frodo, had been given a gift many weeks before by the elf queen, Galadriel, this beautiful, mysterious, powerful person. And the gift was a glass jar, like a glass file, that held within it the brilliant light of a sacred star. And this is how the story went and goes. It says, as the spider drew near, Sam cried out, Master, Master, and life and urgency came back into his voice, The lady's gift, the star glass, a light to you in dark places. She said it was to be the star glass. The star glass, muttered Frodo, as one answering out of sleep, hardly comprehending. Why, yes, 
Why had I forgotten it? A light when all other lights go out. And now indeed, light alone can help us. In Isaiah's life here in chapter 8, light alone could help him. And maybe in your life today, in your family's life today, in a child's life today, in your relative's life today, light alone can help you. Oh, but here, in the middle of his crisis of confidence, at his lowest moment surrounded by darkness, Isaiah, I love this, he dared to look up and dream again. And today, if you feel like your soul, your life, family is surrounded by darkness, I just dare you now to look up like Isaiah did and see what he saw. He moves right into chapter nine. It's beautiful. The first verse, the first word is one of my favorite words in all the Bible. God says, but nevertheless, oh, but nevertheless, say it with me, say nevertheless, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he, God, humbled the land, Zebulun, Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And this is what Isaiah saw. He saw the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. I love this. Isaiah sees a light. Oh, but listen, but it's a specific kind of a light. What kind of light is Isaiah seeing? It's not just any light. Verse two tells us two things about this light. First, Isaiah sees the awesomeness of the light. He calls it, see, not just a light, but what? A great light. This is a word for blazing, great, significant, like the sun had come down in your backyard. You couldn't miss it. This word means an intense light. And this light, this blazing light, he said, will be seen by who? Oh, he says the people walking, not in light, but in darkness. And who were the people walking in darkness? Oh, the people of chapter 8. People who were buried in the darkness cycle, heads down, hands down, hands in the earth. What does this mean? Oh, it means that God was speaking to them then and to us today. And saying that no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's happened to you, no matter how dark it is in your life today, you can have a light in your darkness. You can have a light when all other lights go out. And let me tell you something, you need that. Because at some point, all other lights will go out in your life. And if that hasn't happened to you, you haven't lived long enough yet. All other lights one day will fail you. Your body will fail you one day. Merry Christmas to you all. Your mind will fail you maybe your family will fail you maybe if for just no other reason then you've lived long enough and they all go away in the end every other light will go out but Isaiah is seeing a light now come on for people when all of the lights have gone out in their life and he's saying this is awesome and let me tell you why it's awesome what's so awesome amazing about this light is that this light again is for the very people who are in darkness who are walking perhaps in the fruit of and the result of all their bad choices. Isn't that amazing? Oh, this God isn't just, isn't just coming for the good people who've got it all together. This light isn't just for those who've got a great job and they're rich and they can buy light themselves or for people with the right skin color or the right connections or the right family tree. This light is for those who, like our little hobbit friends in a cave, they're trapped in darkness with no way out. That's who this light is for. And by the way, as we've said earlier, 
If this church is about anything, it ought to be about this, right? About bringing light into dark places, into the lives of people trapped by and in cycles of darkness, cycles of suffering, cycles of poverty. Maybe people who suffer because of upstream cycles, right? Created upstream of them. Isaiah suffered, why? Because bigger and more powerful people than he were locked into cycles of darkness. And those upstream cycles affected his life. See, cycles aren't just spiritual. They're also structural as well. And this is why we Christians, why we do evangelism, right? Why we feed the hungry, why we march, or why we lobby when we do. We do these things to bring darkness to an end, to bring light in the darkness, and to show how awesome the light is. It's not for the good. It's even for the bad, But this light isn't just awesome on the one hand. This light from God, uh uh-oh, is also awful. Awful. You say, how can God's light to me be awful? Oh, look in the second half of verse 2. It says, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has what? Dawned. Oh, notice where he says the light comes from. Not from inside people. Not from inside people's hearts. Not from inside your mind. Your will, your intellect, no, it says this light comes from the outside. The light dawns not within them, hear me, but upon them. But upon them, it comes from the outside. And this then is the awful message of the light that God wants to bring into the world in your life. This light means that you and I, we don't have the means within ourselves to save ourselves. And it's really hard to hear. I get it. We don't like this today. No more than the people in Isaiah's world like to hear it. But this is the unpopular but true message of the light of Christmas as much as the light is uplifting, and it is. It's also insulting. But, 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 if because of that insult we turn off the light, we switch off the light, now we've just cut off the source of our hope. About a hundred years ago, you may know in our nation, churches, Church of Jesus was being massively pressured by the culture to cut out certain parts of the Bible. And these parts, our culture said, oh, they're unbelievably offensive. They said these parts are ridiculous. No one can believe these parts anymore. And if you believe them, you're ridiculous and you're backward and you're offensive. And if you keep believing them, no one's going to come to your churches and your faith will die. So you got to cut out those passages to show that you're with the times. And if you'll do that, culture said, we'll quit ridiculing you in our newspapers in our movies, in our magazines, because, or not movies, but excuse me, newspapers, magazines, the culture said, we've got science now. That's what they said. And science has proven that miracles don't exist. So if you'll cut out the supernatural parts of the Bible, all that miracle healing stuff, we'll get along fine. And you'll prove you're not backwards anymore. And we'll leave you alone. And many churches did that. And as a result, today, a hundred years later, those churches are either dead or dying very rapidly. Why? Because they've cut off the light of God's word to them. But around the world today, do you know where Christianity is growing the fastest statistically? It's overtaken the birth rate. It's spreading so fast in South America, parts of Africa, and China that researchers, sociologists cannot keep up with the growth. And do you know what kind of Christianity is there? It's one that believes in miracles, the supernatural, the infallibility of God's word. And because of that, they see those things happen in their midst. See, far from dying, 
That brand of Christianity is the fastest growing in the world. I'd say God's got a sense of humor. And so when our culture today, when it presses back on you or on me or on us to drop certain parts that it finds offensive or backwards or too hard to live by, and they say, if you'll drop those parts, we'll leave you alone. We'll get along. Be very careful. Because first of all, when was the last time you went online and really read an article that objected to the miracles in the Bible? Right? You don't read those. I mean, they're around here and there. But that's not the primary objection anymore. A hundred years ago, churches were hammered by that. But you don't read those anymore because that's not our modern cultural pressure point. Ours are different. But if we drop those parts our culture objects to now, just like our churches a hundred years ago dropped those parts, what do you think will happen to us? We will become like they became. Why? Because we will have rejected the light. We will have rejected the very thing that can make us shine, that offers hope to the world. See, you can only see who you are, how you should look in the light, in the light. We love the part about the awesomeness of a light and the beauty of a light and the brilliance of a light and there being a light for us when all other lights go out and that's true. But buried in the brilliance is an insult. Embedded in the awesomeness is something that can sound awful, which is this. The light has to dawn on you. It doesn't come from within you. The end of darkness doesn't come from within, but from without. You say, all right, fine then. Can we just move on? Yes. What does that light then ultimately look like, and how can we get it like this? 1797, there was a young African-American girl born. Her name was Isabella Bumfrey. And as a little girl, her mother talked to her about God. And Isabella grew up believing that there was a God somewhere, somehow, in a heaven who saw her and wrote down everything she did or thought. And she began to ask as she got older, what does this really mean? Because the thought began to dawn on her and weigh on her. If God really sees everything, he sees all of my selfishness. And all my evil desires. I mean, she's processing this rightly and correctly way better than we moderns do. And this sense of dread and darkness began to overwhelm Isabella until one night the impossible happened to her. She fell asleep and she had a vision. And she saw in her vision this uncrossable space, like chasm, open up between her and God. And she felt God rightly judging her for all the way she had lived apart from him. But then she had this thought. She thought, what if someone could come and stand in between us and plead my case to God for me? And then on cue, as if on cue, this loving friend, is what she said, a loving friend clothed in brilliant light came and stood between her and God. And she asked that person in the vision, who are you? And then the answer came in a moment. Answer came to Sojourner Truth, because that's the name you most likely know Isabella by. The answer came to Sojourner Truth, the famed abolitionist and minister. And the answer came to her, and this answer was the, the answer that unlocked her heart and formed in her a desire to be a light for others when all of the lights had gone out in her day. And the answer came, the words came, it is Jesus. It's Jesus. Yes, she responded. That's his name. It is Jesus. And her biographer later wrote of that moment, 
I said previously, she had heard Jesus mention in reading or speaking, but had received from what she heard no impression that he was any other than an eminent man like a Washington or a Lafayette. But now he appeared to her so good and so every way lovely, and he loved her so much. And how strange that he had always loved her, and she had never known it. And how great a blessing he conferred, and that he should stand between her and God, and God was no longer a terror and a dread to her. In the light of her great happiness, the world was clad in new beauty. What was she seeing? Oh, she's seeing the same thing Isaiah saw 2,500 years before. 2,500 years before Isabella Bumfrey ever drew breath. Isaiah saw the thing she would see because in Isaiah's vision now, as we move on to the next verses, his vision begins to change and blur a bit. His vision transforms. And in one breath, he goes from seeing a great light. The light begins to take shape and take form. And he grasps now how something awful and awesome can come together in one place. Verse 6, he says, for unto us a child is born he's saying yes i see and as a son is given it's coming together in a person and the government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace and of the greatness the increase of his government and peace will be no end i love this he's saying what if what if the ultimate light the ultimate thing that brings warmth and growth and healing what if that light broke and dawn flashed into the world and that light became a person what would that person be like isaiah wondered what would that feel like and isaiah is describing it he's saying it feels like the most wonderful friend you've ever had the greatest counselor therapist you could ever imagine your uh, the one of the most wonderful powerful friend you could ever imagine in your life the father you always long for coming to life it would be like a light when all other lights went out E. Stanley Jones was a missionary to India in the early 1900s, and he responded to all the darkness, darkness he saw in a culture <coughs> created by a faith system that said the supernatural is just impersonal. God or gods don't really care about humanity. And so he gave this example to people in his culture to explain the light of Isaiah 9. Jones said this. He said, let's say, let's say there was a little boy whose father was an absentee father, wasn't ever home, didn't care for his child, wasn't around. And let's say that lonely little boy with the absentee father saw a picture, a a photo or a snapshot of his father. And when he saw that picture, what if the little boy said, oh, how I wish father would step out of the picture and into my life. And Jones said this, he said, quote, this little boy expressed the deepest yearning of the human heart. We who have gazed upon the picture of God in nature are grateful, but not satisfied. We want our father to step out of the impersonal picture and meet us as a person. Why won't principles do? Why do we need a personal God, someone asks? Well, suppose you go to a child crying for its mother and say, oh, don't cry, little child. I'm giving to you the principle of motherhood. Would the tears dry and the face light up? Hardly. The child would brush aside your principle of motherhood and cry for its mother. We all want not a principle or a picture, but a person. The father has stepped out of the picture. That is the meaning of Christmas. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. We almost gasp as the picture steps out of the frame. We did not dare dream God 
was like Christ, but he is. He is. Centuries ago, when God asked Abraham to look up and believe he was good, when God asked Abraham to believe he was near and faithful and powerful and would keep his promise to him, what did God ask Abraham to do? He asked him to go outside and look up at what? Stars, yeah, the light. God asked Abraham to look at the light in order to believe. And I'm asking you, church, friend, person, to do the same today, same thing today, as God asked of Abraham, as God asked of Isaiah, as God would one day ask the shepherds, keeping watch in the fields, to look up and see the light if your heart needs hope today. Didn't, didn't John the apostle, didn't he write, the light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The same can be true for you today. His word he was promised can be good if you look up and believe today.